Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host, William Hill. Today is June 1st, 2015. This is broadcast 84. And as usual, I have uh, inadvertently listened to myself talk, but this is our monthly edition of Faith and Practice. This is segment number 14, where we sit down with Dr. Joseph Piper. He is the president of the seminary, and we take questions from you, the listener, uh, related to theological and or practical Christianity-type questions. And so we have a number of good questions today, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. Uh, just to bring everybody up to speed on what we're doing, it is now summer, so I have a little more time to devote to some of the things that I'd like to do, projects and whatnot, for the podcast. So I'm diligently working on some of those and lining up guests uh, all the way through the summer. So we're not going to slow down here, Lord willing, on these things. But uh, if you want to find out more information about the podcast, you can go to our website at Confessing Our Hope. Dot com. In addition to that, we do want to make sure everybody is aware of the seminary website, gpts.edu. Those who faithfully listen each week know about our website, but we are constantly updating it with different things. For instance, we do have the Summer Institute this summer, obviously, that was a little redundant, um, that we do every year here at the seminary. And Dr. Piper, I'm going to ask him to talk a little bit about that briefly before we start the questions and answer section of the podcast. And then we have other types of activities throughout the summer. So we really don't slow down here. We just change gears a little bit. So anyway, as I indicated, we are uh, talking with Dr. Pipe of Faith and Practice number 14, a very popular uh, segment of the podcast. And we do appreciate all of you who listen and send in questions. And keep doing that, please. Um, and it, it depends on you sending questions. So uh, do so. And uh, we thank you for that. So Dr. Pipe, really quick, uh, the Summer Institute that's coming up, uh, do you want to spend just a few minutes talking about that, highlighting right. it for us? Thank you, Bill, and uh, good morning to those of you who are listening live. When I came to the seminary 17 and a half years ago, I was uh, asked to consider starting a, a DMIN program in preaching, <clears throat> but it had been my experience, having been involved with such a program, that it didn't really help preaching improve. And so instead, we started the Summer Institute, which is aimed primarily uh, at pastors, but also for ruling elders and uh, other key men in the church, as well then as seminary students. <clears throat> and we address, for the most part, preaching. We have done things on pastoral care, medical ethics, but we primarily uh, deal with some aspect of preaching. This summer, I'm very excited about the project uh, that we're doing. Uh, a year ago at our spring conference, uh, Palmer Robertson was in town for a few days and did a abbreviated version of his new material, The Flow of the Psalms. Mm -hmm. It was a hit with everybody. A number of people, including our students and ministers that heard it, said we really need to you know, incorporate this. So I invited Dr. Robertson to come and do this flow of the Psalms, where he shows the relationship, the interior relationship of the Psalms, that there's a structure there, there's context. Providentially, his book also has just been published, so we'll be using that. <clears throat> but he only wanted to take about half the time, so I then took the other half of the time to do this, lead a section on preaching then from the Psalms. So he'll lecture in the mornings, and then I'll lecture and lead discussion in the afternoon. We've got a huge sign-up. And I'm very excited about the uh, potential to help preaching uh, with regard to this. Uh, there are two required books, uh, Belcher's book on preaching from the Psalms and Dr. Robertson's book 
uh, on the floor of the Psalms. These were posted on our website. It's not too late to register, but we encourage you to do so so you'll have time. The only other assignment you'll have then is to uh, write one sermon from a psalm of your choice. So we look forward to seeing many of you the first full week of August here at the seminary. Yes, very good, and, and I am taking that class as well. I'm very excited about it, and uh, it, the date's just for um, everybody to know. It is the first full week, as Dr. Piper mentioned, August 3rd through the 7th here at the seminary, and uh, the website for that is gpts.edu forward slash pastors. If you want to look at that, there's all the information, registration information, contact, all that stuff is available there for you information. All right, well, let's... Uh, get right into these questions, Dr. Piper. We have, as usual, we have good questions, well thought out questions. So I'm going to just jump in. I think we didn't talk about order today. So I'm just going to start from the top and work my way to the bottom, if that's okay with you. That's good. Okay, here we go. David writes in, and uh, he's obviously a longtime listener because he's actually referencing a previous faith and practice question. And he's asking a question on the subject of divine impassibility. So here's the question. He says in an earlier episode, you gave a defense of divine impassibility. How would you respond to those who claim to affirm impassibility, yet re- redefine it? I'm thinking of Rob Lister's book, God is Impassible and Impassioned, or otherwise modify classical theism, i.e. Scott Oliphant's covenantal properties. You referred to the denial of impassibility as being dangerous. Would you categorize these things in the same way? <laughs> Thank you, David. Now, let me set some background by taking you to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 1, of God and the Holy Trinity. There is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, the most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, etc., now, the key section here is without body parts or passions. First, is quite obvious that God does not have a body like man. Parts is uh, that God is simple. Uh, he is uh, his being. He is his attributes. And we can't divide God. And then passions. Now, historically, this has been referred to in classical theism as God's impassibility. He is without passions. And as that's understood... What that means is that God is not reactive. He doesn't respond to situations in a cause and effect uh, type relationship. Uh, But does that mean that uh, there is nothing in God that is akin to our emotions? When the Bible says that God loves or uh, is angry or is jealous, what is being communicated? And I'm most comfortable with the idea that uh, there are is in God uh, things that would be similar to our emotions, but they're acts of God's will, and they're part of his eternal being and purpose. Now, what Lister and uh, Oliphant are trying to do is to delve more deeply into if they are part of his eternal purpose, and yet in Scripture... Uh, they're revealed in an unfolding drama narrative of time and the actions of people. How do we explain these things? Now, as I understand it, Lister's attempt is that God has a duality of being and time. 
and that he is uh, both atemporal and omnitemporal. And so that although God is eternally outside of time, that he is in time as he is in space, although he is immense and holds all space together. And it's in this way that he is in time that there is a sequence of acts in which God um, responds uh, to people according to his uh, holy will and good pleasure. Now, I'm not comfortable with uh, Lister's uh, thesis of this duality within God, and you find a very good critique of it in Paul Helm, for example, amongst others. Now, Scott Oliphant's book is a, a bit more nuanced, I think, and I am not ready to uh, – I've not read the book, and I've read the uh, reviews that have been both pro uh, and a bit more critical of the book. But if, if I understand it correctly, Dr. Oliphant's uh, thesis is that there are covenantal properties that God has adapted from uh, the beginning of time. And these were manifested in the second person of the Godhead in a sense anticipatory of the Incarnation. And so that when it would say that um, God says of Abraham, now I know that you fear me. That's traditionally been understood as an accommodation that now I've made known. Um, but I think that uh, Dr. Oliphant's approach would be that covenantally God is, has this element of ignorance that he's taken on himself covenantally in prospect of the incarnation. Now, <clears throat> on the surface, I have difficulty with that, but I've not uh, thoroughly worked through. There's a good review by Mark Jones. Dr. Jones is uh, more sympathetic. Uh, and a good review by Paul Helm, who is not as sympathetic to the thesis that Oliphant has put forward. So I hope we'll, we'll revisit uh, this particular issue. Uh, and might even be good, Bill, for you to uh, maybe get Scott mm. and mm -hmm. Paul on a, a program at the same time to uh, to talk about this. Okay, I'll take that as a order from my boss. <laughs> <laughs> I know he loved that. Uh, very good. And uh, do you remember the name of the title of the book, the Elephant Book? Because I'm not even familiar with this. Yeah, the Elephant Book is. Um, uh, I've got it. I knew you would want to know that. So it's. Um, Well, I had it. I looked it up. We've done a lot of research this morning again on it. Sorry, I, I, I kind of blindsided you with that question. Well, we, if, if it it's, comes up, and we'll come back to it. It's not know. in my notes here. Yeah, we'll get uh, it. And maybe one of our esteemed listeners uh, who are following us on Twitter, this is a good segue into that. If you do have a question, you're listening live right now, or even if you're not listening live and you want to send a question through Twitter, which many people are using, it's very simple. You just use the hashtag... GPTSFP, all one word, GPTSFP. And if you do that, I will see the question immediately. So um, that's another way for you to contact us live while, we're ha while it's happening. But you can use that either way, and I will incorporate that into the next edition of the, of the Faith and Practice segment. So, uh, but if a listener out there knows the answer to that question off the top of their head, uh, by all means, send it through Twitter, and I will uh, see it as well. So Anyway, very good, and I did fail to mention that uh, this is one of our U.K. listeners that has written in. 
and so it's good to have people listening from all over the world. Our next question is um, one of a sensitive nature, so I will not be using the name of the individual who has written in. Um, we're thankful that you use us for these questions, but uh, we, we always try to be careful. And um, so it's on the subject of contentious women and divorce. And the question is, for four years I was married to a woman who met the definition of a contentious woman as defined by Proverbs 27, 15, 16, 21, 9, etc. Eventually she left me for a new victim after bankrupting me and severely affecting my spiritual and emotional well-being. Hmm. I know of several other men who are or were in similar marriages. In some cases, these women are physically abusive, but in all the cases, they are verbally and emotionally abusive, and they generally are fiscally irresponsible. Do you have any advice on how the individual men involved and how the sessions of their churches should deal with such situations, and at what point is it allowable to separate from or divorce such a woman? I'm well aware that the confession only allows for divorce in the case of adultery and abandonment. Is there any time when leaving and or seeking the protection of the state through divorce, assuming the contentious woman doesn't leave or commit adultery first, no longer abandonment? All right. Thank you very much. And let me just uh, say the uh, title of uh, Scott's new book is God With Us. God With Us. God With Us. Okay, so there we go. Very good. Thank you. Well... We appreciate your willingness to uh, share this pastoral situation with us and others who have shared some uh, similar things uh, lately at the seminary. We are concerned uh, that we develop as pastors, not simply as theologians, uh, but theologian pastors and preachers. So it's important that we are equipped to uh, try to think through these types of things. <clears throat> the first thing that this question and, and a similar question we had in the previous uh, podcast uh, issue raises for us is the importance of being in a biblically sound church that has good pastoral care and oversight. Because if you're not in such a church, you're immediately got two strikes against you in dealing with any type of serious problem in life and particularly in marriage. And so my answer will be premised upon the fact that uh, we're talking about people who are in churches that take seriously pastoral care and oversight and church discipline. So in a case like this, <clears throat> and I do think this uh, the question also, let me mention, just highlights the fact we all, so often when we think about uh, Spouse abuse, we think about men abusing women. And the question highlights the reality that both physically and mentally and emotionally, that abuse streak runs both directions. And in either case, it is, uh, it's sinful. Now, <clears throat> in a situation like this, uh, a man needs to be able to go to his session and... Uh, to his pastor, his elder initially, and say, you know, we're having problems in our marriage. Here's how I see it, but of course you need to talk to both of us in order to, uh, to see what's going on. So begin this process of uh, uh, taking the problem to the uh, uh, pastors of the church. Now, we will assume that uh, in, under this pastoral care that the woman... Um, 
has the primary sin problem in this relationship. And I was just talking to someone yesterday about another situation where the wife is highly manipulative and... uh, but she kicked her husband out, and so that, in a sense, made it easier on him because then we have right. um, the other grounds in the confession. But um, <coughs> at which point the elders <coughs> would admonish her and begin the process of required uh, biblical counseling. And so she and she and her husband together would submit to biblical counseling. Now, at this point, the case will go in one of two directions. If she's a converted person and she repent and submit and she can learn to uh, change her habits and they can grow and develop in their marriage. Uh, For the other hand, if she uh, is uh, hardened and uh, sinfully stubborn, either refusing counseling or going through the counseling and refusing to do anything that's placed upon her. The discipline of the church would increase from admonition to suspension, and eventually it would increase to excommunication, at which point um, we still would pray that the Spirit would use excommunication in one of its primary purposes, and that is to bring reclamation to the um, offending person. Now, <clears throat> would it at that point, if she were excommunicated, be lawful to divorce her? And I would say no. Hmm. Uh, as long as she is living there, um, <clears throat> um, willing to live under the roof, uh, willing to participate in the marriage relationship, uh, that uh, the man finds himself. I mean, that's what Proverbs talks about. It's difficult to live with a contentious woman, but it doesn't say you bail out. Now, it's quite possible that under this kind of discipline and counseling that the woman herself would bail out, at which point the man is then free. Now, I did use, I said, if she's willing to stay with him and... uh, exercise the marriage relationship, it would seem to me that if she begins to take vengeance by withholding the conjugal rights of the marriage, and that goes through counseling as well, and she would continue to uh, refuse that, that then it becomes much more of an issue that we do here now have sexual immorality um, and uh, I think that some sessions at that point would give the man uh, the right to uh, to divorce her. So it's a much more difficult when when it's the woman. If it's a man doing this and he's not providing for his family, that does come under abandonment. But I think that's why Proverbs addresses living with the contentious woman. I remember years ago reading the story of one of the really godly. I think it was a Scottish. It was a Scottish, a Puritan preacher. I think it was Scottish and. His study uh, at each end had imprints in the wall from his his fingers. His wife would not allow him to have light or heat in the mornings up early. He'd be up early in his study to pray. And he would simply, in the dark, walk back and forth praying with his hands out in front of him. So he'd hit the wall on one side, turn around and go the other side. This godly minister submitted to... Uh, 
this woman in that way rather than uh, um, mm. uh, leave her or kick her out. Now, when you talk about bankrupting a man, again, you have to exercise uh, headship in uh, in these relationships. And so <clears throat> that means that uh, there'd be no credit cards in both names, that uh, you would keep very close account of the uh, finances and lotting out money that is spent, things like that as well. It's not easy. I heard a really <clears throat> very good sermon last night from one of our graduates who pastors here in town. <clears throat> and he was preaching through Titus, and he came to the point of dealing with the admonition to slaves. It was a useful sermon, but the third point was just a tremendous insight, and that is God's call to unequivocal, universal obedience. If a slave is called to obey his master regardless, and there's five different specifics that are laid out in Titus, then whatever situation we find ourselves in, there's never an exception uh, to God's uh, commandments. So um, we should pray for one another, and, but recognizing God's providence, we're going to find ourselves, some of us, in these kind of situations, and as much as divorce would be an easy way out, it's not to be the easy road taken. Yeah, very good question. I do have a follow-up, Dr. Piper, and it's something that I think we've dealt with in the past, but it's a term that seems to be getting thrown around um, and related to these, this subject of marriage. Uh, and so briefly, perhaps, talk about this, this phrase, covenantal abandonment. I mean, people are using it now often, and I, I'm sometimes afraid that they're using it to kind of get around things, maybe. I don't know. What does it mean? I've not heard it, so I... I, I I really? Don't really know. Interesting. I'm thinking that this means that the person has broken the marriage covenant. If that's what it means, then that's simply. But if it has, if it has to do with, well, they don't agree with me in the faith, or they're not going to raise our children in the Lord, or things like that. Well, that's not. Yeah, a, I, it's not abandonment. I've often heard it used in the sense of not adultery. Other matters like not providing, or. Well, okay. I mean, if a man's not providing, I believe that's abandonment. I wouldn't call it covenantal abandonment. I would just call it abandonment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think we dealt with that last time and time before. Yep. So, yeah, if he's not providing or if he's beating her, uh, any number of things, then, um, again, you go through the process with right. the elders, discipline, yep. counseling, and he refuses, then the at that point, the session would declare him having abandoned her. Yep. And it's, in a sense, easier to do that when it's the man who's responsible for those things than the woman who's simply hard to live with. Yep. Very good. Uh, just uh, by way of comment, too, on these these very uh, personal types question, personal type questions that are worded well, and, and we try to be sensitive. But let me, let me suggest this also to our <coughs> listeners, and, and I think Dr. Pipe would wholeheartedly agree with this comment. We should not be the first stop, i.e., don't write your question to us looking for advice. If you have not already, on these kinds of issues, they're serious, they're involved, if you have not already talked with your elders and discussed these things with them, I mean, that, that's your got to be your first place. And, and I just want to say that I don't, I'm not suggesting that that's what's happened here or, or any time in the past. I just want to say that as an elder, I might feel a little 
Well, I think you get the point. That's the means that God's given his people for these kinds of things. Not to suggest that you can't write us after that, but just keep that in mind. Um, these are very serious issues, and your session, your elders, are there to help you, shepherd you through these types of things. What were you showing me on your phone? Got a live question. I got it, too. All right. We'll come to that. I think we'll have time. All right, moving on to... I do want to deal with it today because it's before the General Assembly. Yes, right? sir. Yeah, okay. Uh, do you want to deal with it now? Let's deal with it now. Okay, we'll deal with it now. Um, we did get a question in from Twitter. Um, it's uh, Mike Hutchinson. He is a, a, a former student, I think, here. I, I don't know. Mike, I've lost track of where you've gone. I think you're in Tennessee now. But anyway, be that as it may, he wrote it on Twitter. He's going to be at the Summer Institute. He's going to be at the Summer Institute. Very good. He wrote in and said, could Dr. Piper comment on the recreation clause in Overture 9 to remove the clause from the standards by the Tennessee Valley Presbytery? All right. Thank you, Hutch. Uh, the recreation clause is in the Confession of Faith, amongst other places, chapter 21, paragraph 8. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe and wholly rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about their worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties and of necessity and mercy. And then in the uh, larger catechism, <clears throat> one seventeen, the Sabbath or Lord's Day is to be sanctified by a holy resting all the day, not only from such works as that are all times sinful, but even from such worldly employments and recreations as are on other days lawful. <clears throat> so that's the um, <clears throat> recreation clause. <clears throat> Many <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, ministers and elders in the uh, Presbyterian Church in America, as they come for their examinations, are taking exception to the Sabbath and uh, to this clause. Now, nine times out of ten, that is a subterfuge to avoid the requirements of the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. Maybe a tenth of the time, it's a misunderstanding. Let's deal with the misunderstanding first. <clears throat> the Recreation Clause is not forbidding uh, taking a nap on the Lord's Day afternoon. That is both a deed of necessity and mercy for many people, particularly if they want to get back fresh to worship on Sunday night. Nor does it mean that you make your children sit like uh, dummies all afternoon when they've been going at 100 miles an hour uh, rest of, of the week. It might mean that you get down on the floor and tussle with them. You go out in the backyard. Some father might go out for a bit and, and throw a ball with his uh, son. Uh, there are more constructive things to do, take them for walks and uh, use that time to catechize them or to talk about God's goodness and experiences or God's work in creation. But these are not the things that are in view. The Recreation Clause has to do with um, pursuing recreational activity as an end in itself. So all the way from watching uh, sports on television to playing golf or tennis or a church organizing a volleyball game out in the church lot or a softball game on Sunday afternoon. 
Now, these are the things that are prohibited, and they're prohibited for a reason, and that is that God has freed us from distractions that we might devote the day to him. And it says a lot about where our hearts are if we do not want to give God a whole day. If we can't imagine our young people in our churches having to spend a Sunday afternoon uh, having fellowship or serving or studying, um, and if we don't provide playtime for them, that they're going to be unhappy. Well, that just shows us the worldliness of our hearts, the extent of the problem we have in our churches. And so at the end of the day, it really is a rebellion, I think, against the fourth commandment, another way to get around it. I leave by... uh, God's grace, we'll leave, uh, God willing, Wednesday to fly to Singapore. I'll be doing a six-part conference on the Lord's Day. And one of the things I've been doing since they've just uh, finally we've got republished or published um, Nicholas Bound uh, on the Sabbath. I've been rereading that. I had not read all of it in the past, reading it, rereading it, and it's excellent, and it increased my own love for and zeal for uh, the Lord's Day, and I would encourage uh, all of our hearers to get that book and to uh, to read it. You also can get my book, which is not nearly as long as Bounds, um, on the Lord's Day, <coughs> but in there I have a chapter on how to spend the Lord's Day. I have a chapter that deals with necessity and mercy and the kind of questions that we ought to ask about our activities. And I have a chapter about making the Lord's Day special for your children. And so, but I think if we do not stand uh, firmly here, uh, we're going to see a great decline in church. Dabney and Hodge both said that when the Sabbath goes, piety goes, and when piety goes, doctrine goes. And I think that's so true in the history of the church. Um, there are those that talk about the continental view of the Sabbath with respect to recreation clause. Um, as one wag said, that is simply the Lutheran view. There was no reformed continental view of the Sabbath that was different from the Westminster Confession. Yep. Calvin in his sermons in Deuteronomy and other places in his commentaries is quite clear uh, about uh, the Sabbath and the myth that Calvin uh, lawn bowled on a Sunday afternoon has been disproven by Chris Caldwell, and there's actually a piece available online uh, where he dem- demonstrates that. So I encourage those of you in the PCA, I don't think we need a study committee because most study committees end in um, information. Yeah. Uh, information usually waters down the position. Right. Uh, but uh, that's, that's what's going on. Yep. Just a. <laughs> it, it, comment even further on, on there, there's actually two overtures that are dealing with the recreation clause that are going before the GA in the PCA this year. The first one says basically the same thing as the second one, except the second one, I think I have my order correct, the second one, and I think it's the Tennessee Valley one, actually attempted at least to deal with it in, uh, from a biblical exegetical uh, position. They didn't just send the overture up with their statements, but they actually interacted with the text, like Isaiah 58 and other passages that that the, the Westminster Standards use to support the Recreation Clause. So on that, I appreciate. I don't agree with their conclusions, but I appreciate that they did that. Um, 
because at the end of the day, if the scriptures don't teach the recreation clause, then by all means we should get rid of it, right? But if it does teach it, then by all means we should leave it in, and that's the only place we can go to determine that reality. So at least I appreciated that Presbyterian's uh, efforts to use the scriptures insofar as they understood things to send this overture to the GA, and that should be commended even if we don't agree with the conclusion. So um, anyway, I just wanted to get that in there. Um, it's not original with me. A man at Banner Conference said the same thing to me as well, so appreciated that. Good question um, from Mike Hutchinson in, from Tennessee, and uh, appreciate you listening as well. All right, pressing on, we have um, just our time check. We have about 23, no, yeah, 23 minutes um, time left, Dr. Piper, so you know where we are. Uh, Arthur writes in from um, Middletown, Pennsylvania. He's written in before, a longtime listener as far as I know. Uh, on the question of culture and the church. So this kind of goes together in some sense with what we just talked about on the Lord's Day. He asks, in light of the current warp speed changes in our culture, in other words, the homosexual culture and increasing acceptance of Islamic violence against Christians, have reached the point when a responsible pastor should begin preaching sermons on persecution. And if we have arrived at that point, do you have any suggestions as to a structured approach to such a series? Thanks, Hart. I agree with you that uh, it appears that the culture is moving to a point where the church in the United States uh, <coughs> could be experiencing even severe uh, persecution. <clears throat> I think it is important that we um, prepare our people for that. I was scanning the web here trying to find – I didn't get down to the library before the program this morning, but um, – a man that I met years ago uh, named Sloshberg, who wrote a book on uh, modern culture and the trends uh, that we're seeing, did a follow-up book on persecution because he was convinced, and this was when I was still in Houston, so we're talking about 30-something years ago, he was convinced that persecution uh, was coming. So we need to get that book. We'll get the name of it and get that uh, posted on the uh, podcast website. But I do think that we need to begin to prepare our people for uh, persecution. I think we should preach on um, what I just mentioned, unequivocal, um, universal obedience to all of God's law all the time, that if we're not willing to obey God's law with respect to stealing, we're going to cheat it in our taxes to save ourselves a little money. Uh, we're going to sneak a little look at pornography to um, – uh, thrill ourselves a bit, then we surely are not prepared um, for what's coming down the road, possibly coming down the road. So mm -hmm. we start with universal obedience <coughs> and emphasize the importance and the beauty. Uh, we need to preach on endurance. It's a theme straight through Scripture. And passages that help there, the uh, Olivet Discourse, which I take the preterist position on. I believe that up until <coughs> Christ says this generation will not pass away, <coughs> that it's all having to do with the destruction of the temple and the end of the old covenant era. But the patterns are all there. These things will continue to happen in the culture, and we have these assurances, but we also have the responsibility uh, to endure. Mm -hmm. And then... I think uh, to preach the book of Revelation, I think regardless of one's approach to the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation is written to help the church in a time of persecution. 
so which of the three major views you take with respect to the book uh, <coughs> is irrelevant with respect to its purposes in our lives. And that is that we'll be blessed if we read it, and it does teach us God's sovereignty and God's deliverance in the times of persecution. It helps us to look to Christ. I think we need to be encouraging each other in the use of Scripture, Scripture memorization, catechetical memorization, hymn, psalm memorization, so that we are prepared if we <coughs> were to be to lose the means, public means of grace or to be imprisoned without uh, Bibles and, and such as that. So, and now's the time to do it when uh, we can get people uh, prepared. Mm. Um, the whole idea of self-denial, uh, we've kind of have developed a mentality in the uh, church in the United States of an entitlement, and we don't have any rights um, necessarily. We have no guarantees, and so we must, again, come back to thinking about self-denial uh, in our lives and willing to take up that cross of Christ daily and to have fellowship with him in his sufferings, even in his death. Mm. Very good answer. And uh, just want to check with you, Dr. Pipe, is the book you're referring to, Herb Schlossberg? Yeah. 1980s book, Idols for Destruction? That's the first one. Okay. That was, the second one was on persecution. Did you find it? Uh, no, a listener actually wrote me uh, directly and asked if that's it. So, yeah, but um, the, the Herbert Schlossberg, type that in and then persecution and you get the second book. Outstanding. So there you go. And one of the benefits of doing it live is we get immediate feedback from listeners, so I really appreciate that. It keeps and me by on the my way, toes as well. Idols <laughs> for Destruction is also a great book, and it... Uh, Really, again, 30-something years ago now, exactly what's happening in the culture in terms of um, greed and covetousness and how yep. that motivates people. It's a fantastic book. And I got to meet Herbert and spend a lot of time with him. And um, so, But he was writing the book on persecution at the time, and I never got it and have not read it, but I'm motivated now to do so. so. Yep. Yeah, great question and, and one that, yeah, we're facing, I think, um, almost – Certainly, unless the Lord intervenes dramatically. The next question comes from the website. Um, just, a just a programming note for at least my preference as a host. Um, I don't mind questions coming from the comment sections of the website. I'm not as quick to get them, and it's a little more difficult for me. I'll do it. I'll eventually find it. Um, but I would prefer the listeners use the form that I've created. I get that. That comes right to my email. I can't miss it, and I can send it immediately to Dr. Piper. Um, and it's just simpler. Again, I'm not suggesting that you don't do this. It's just if you can use the actual form there on the website for this purpose, if you would please. But anyway, they write in. And I did skip that one question for the moment. We'll come back to it, Dr. Piper, just so you know what I'm doing. It's the question from the website. What do Reformed theologians mean when they use the term the covenant? That's in quotes. Are they speaking of the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, the old covenant, the new covenant, the Davidic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant of redemption, etc.? There are many covenants in Reformed theology. Does this term have any specific meaning? I greatly appreciate the ministry of Greenville Seminary and pray God's continued blessing upon it. This comes from Nate, again, from the website directly. All right. <coughs> well, Nate, I think we have to say it actually depends upon the context <coughs> in which the... Um, word is used. 
and so it can be used in any of these ways as you have, uh, have laid them out. Now, if we're taking it more broadly, covenant theology, then we're talking about the theology of the Westminster Standards, where the Bible is structured around the covenant of works, the covenant of grace, the unfolding of redemption and the history of salvation through the successive covenants, each one building, incorporating and building on what went before until the picture is finally laid out in the new covenant, Christ comes and accomplishes our salvation. So covenant theology in that sense is really another way to talk about Calvinism. Uh, all the doctrines of the Westminster Confession, I think, are part of covenant theology. Yes, even church government, uh, because church government is part of the application of salvation. One's view of baptism, children in the church, one's view of the Lord's Supper, one's view of eschatology, the end times. All of this is a part. So in that sense, covenant theology refers to uh, Scripture. The great covenant promise, I am your God, you are my people, I am with you, is a thread that runs straight through uh, Scripture. Now, when we say there are many covenants in Reformed theology, we really are saying there's many administrations of the one covenant of grace. As, again, the Confession says, there's only two covenants, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace has various dispensations or administrations, and they are referred to as covenants, but they are simply administrations of the one covenant of grace. But, Nate, we appreciate your listening. We appreciate your appreciation for the work of GPTS and that you pray for us. Yes, thank you very much for the question. And also, <coughs> by the way, um, those who write in questions that we use on the air are eligible for a $10 discount to the Banner of Truth Trust online web store. Um, so at the completion of the program, when it's actually produced in podcast form, released out, not today, but when I do it, probably one week from today, um, they'll get an email with the coupon. This is why it's important for you to use the form on the website, because then I have all the information I need to get you that code. Twitter is good, and I can always backtrace, but it just takes more work for me to do that, and I want you to get the discount. So um, I want you to get good books in your hands, and we give you $10 off any purchase to do that. So uh, try to use the form. It just makes it easier for you and for me. Do you have a question? Okay, here we go. It's Herbert Schlossberg, A Fragrance of Oppression, The Church and Its Persecutors. This is the Turning Point Christian Worldview Series, and I think you can go online and find it just like that. As a follow-up, Call to Suffer, Call to Triumph, 18 True Stories by Persecuted Christians. And um, if you have trouble, write us, because of this. if you go online where I went, you get the uh, ISBN number as well, and then it's no problem at all to uh, uh, run down the, uh, the book. It was published in 1991. Idols of Destruction was earlier. It was 1983. So mm -hmm. we worked on that a long time. But um, I think it's knowing him, uh, it's probably going to be a very useful book. Outstanding. And I will have that information on when this podcast is released in, to the general public. I will have that in the, we call it show notes, but show it'll be notes. there on the uh, webpage. Oh, you're pressing <laughs> along just for Dr. Piper's knowledge because he can't see what I can see. We have 16 minutes left of the live broadcast, so we're going to press along. We have two questions primarily left, uh, maybe a third, depending. Um, yeah, I know. I know which one you're talking about. 
Um, but I'm sk- I've skipped over it on purpose. I think we did it last week, no, last we time. But we'll do it at the end anyway. I do want to get to the last one uh, that was written in for sure, um, if that's okay with you. So Mel writes in from Colorado. Um, his subject is, well, he puts the subject in being cut off, but the question is very short, which I'm thankful for. <laughs> what does it mean when an Israelite was cut off from the congregation as in Exodus 12:19? All right, Mel. Thank you. Let me get to, uh, see, he threw me a, a curveball here by not following the order. So Exodus 12:19. Seven days there should be no leaven found in your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened, that person should be cut off from the congregation of Israel. In the Old Covenant, you find two penalties. Uh, One is death, and that is for serious moral violations. The other is being cut off, and that's most often for ceremonial violations. And cut off is simply being excommunicated. Israel had a, a, evidently a book of registry, and so we read in Numbers, the censuses that were taking, there was a list of all of the people, and we assume that that was something that was kept up. So if you were cut off, that means you were excommunicated, you were removed from the book of citizenry of Israel. <coughs> so it shows the seriousness of the offense, but also helps us understand the difference. So for example, go back to the Sabbath. Um, a person who broke the Sabbath was not cut off. They were put to death. Hmm. And uh, showing that's a serious moral offense, that the Sabbath was never considered a ceremonial law, not in its fourth commandment form. There were ceremonial applications of the Sabbath as there were of all the other commandments as well. So cut off is simply to be excommunicated. Very good. And again, do thank you for writing in and asking this question. Now, the one I wanted to definitely get to, um, and we can come back if you're okay with that, to the <coughs> the question on the Merrill controversy. But um, um, <coughs> J.R. McCreevy writes in from South Carolina. Um, he's also a student of the seminary. It's another reason why I wanted to get to this question, frankly. Um, well, so in Gill, he's a new student. Uh, we'll get to him. I, I think we'll have time. <laughs> He's written in many times. No offense, Gil. I love you, brother. Um, but this is a first-time write-in. Um, so, anyway, <laughs> I'm getting the. It's not TV, Doctor Piper. It's radio. He's shaking his head at me. Anyway, he writes in. The Roman Eastern and traditional Anglican churches do not hold to the Protestant understanding of sola scriptura. One of their more common arguments against this doctrine is that under Sola Scriptura, we all become our own interpreters of Scripture, resulting in thousands of denominational schisms over theology. Could you respond to this critique and explain what role, if any, interpretive tradition has in the Presbyterian Reformed understanding of faith and practice? Now, this was a quote. I'm not going to bother reading the rest of it. It was a quote taken from another source, um, So, but I don't think I need to even deal with that. I think the question itself stands on its own as worthy of response. All right, very good, J.R. I think you're right that this is an accusation that's brought against the position, but it's brought against the evangelical misunderstanding of the position of sola scriptura. The doctrine of sola scriptura is, is that the Bible alone is our only rule of faith and practice. And so we never... (laughs) 
<coughs> would put traditions of the church or decrees of the pope or any other council uh, on a level with scripture. And so these groups, well, the Roman and Eastern churches, well, the Roman church has uh, both the papal uh, pronouncements as well as the apostolic traditions, the Eastern church and, and the early church councils. The Eastern church has the early church councils and apostolic tradition. Anglican churches go back to the five ecumenical councils, those first five councils of uh, the church. Uh, in contrast to that, uh, we hold to the statement of Scripture time and again, such as found in Deuteronomy chapter 4, do not add to or take away from these words. If it's not taught in the Bible explicitly or by good and necessary consequence, we're not to believe it. Does this then lead to the tyranny of the individual? It does <coughs> if we divorce it from the very important interpretive principle of the analogy of faith. That includes two things. Scripture interprets Scripture. So we don't pull things out. We don't proof text. But we look at, we interpret one verse in the light of all the teaching of Scripture. But the second is, how has the church understood this truth or this doctrine? And this brings us to the role of creeds in the history of interpretation. And Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, gives this instruction. Retain the standard of sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Ghost who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Now the phrase here, um, the standard that Paul uses the standard of sound words has to do with the blueprint or the pattern. In the New Testament, there's good tradition and there's bad tradition. Bad tradition are things that simply developed up out developed out of the um, teaching of different rabbis and speculations and such as that. But there was an apostolic tradition. Timothy didn't have Paul's letters at this point. But there was a summary of apostolic doctrine. I actually have a, a chapter on this in a Soledad Gloria book called uh, Almond Christian Soldiers is the title of the book. And my chapter is on confessionalism, the biblical warrant for making confessions. And I use this passage of Scripture. So we're to hold fast to this pattern, this blueprint of sound words, which you have heard from me, and through the Holy Spirit guard this treasure that's been entrusted to us. So there's an apostolic pattern. That apostolic pattern uh, <coughs> was picked up then in what we call the Apostles' Creed. It wasn't written by the apostles, but it was clearly a statement of the apostolic pattern. And there we have the outline of the Christian faith. Moreover, we don't stand uh, in isolated uh, islands we build on the shoulders then of the fathers. So we don't have to look at every new doctrine. Do we have to go back and re-examine what the Bible says about the Trinity in every generation? Well, in the sense of making it our own, yes, but in the sense are we going, do we need to go back here and discover uh, 
uh, about God being one in three, well, no. We build on what God has revealed through, uh, through the church. Keith Matheson has a very good book on Sola Scriptura, and he deals there with the whole role of confessions, creedalism. Um, well, he takes the ancient confessions. I update his argument and say we should talk about the Westminster Confession, the three forms of unity mm -hmm. today, because there is a great consensus. <coughs> and then just so you'll know, it's a myth to talk about the magisterium, the unified approach to truth, say, in the Roman Catholic Church. They've got as many different <laughs> variations, sects, and, and such uh, as Protestantism does. <coughs> Anglicanism is greatly divided, and so you've got different dioceses. You've got an African diocese functioning in America because they are at odds with the British <coughs> or with the American yep. over uh, social issues. The Eastern Orthodox Church probably is the most unified because it has very little doctrine. Mm -hmm. It really is simply into um, the mystery of, of, the, uh, of the Mass, the sacrament. Yep. It's a great question. It's one that we often wrestle with, and but we need to have a ready answer for it as well. And um, so thank you, uh, JR, for writing in, and I hope that helps your question, or helps you with the, the, the question, uh, helps answer it uh, um, for you. Now, just so you know, uh, time-wise, I have six minutes. Dr. Piper, uh, can you do that in six minutes? Oh, yeah. Okay. I want to leave at least one minute for closing remarks on this end. A couple things I do need to say about the podcast. Um, so but let me now have to go find the question. There it is. Um, Gil writes in. He, he's uh, residing in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Go Pirates. He's moved down <laughs> here by now, but anyway. That's kind of an inside joke. He knows what I mean when I say go Pirates. Hmm. Um, the question. It's on, uh, on, on the Merrill controversy, the book, and he writes, What are your thoughts on the book, The Merrill of Modern Divinity? Does it teach antinomianism with or without Thomas Boston notes? All right, we did have a question last month or the month before on uh, the marrow by uh, a Puritan named Fisher. I, I said then I, don't, I think the book does not teach antinomianism. Uh, I don't think Boston's notes teach antinomianism. <coughs> they ex Fisher expresses some things in the context of the what's called the neonomianism, the a legalistic view to salvation that was promulgated by men like Richard Baxter. And he probably expressed himself at times in ways that would be unhelpful, particularly in our day and context. Mm -hmm. And the Merrill men in Scotland, uh, Thomas Boston, discovered this work and realized that they were facing a very similar theological difficulty in the Scottish church that Fisher was dealing with in the old English church. And so he had the book redone and wrote notes. <clears throat> I read the book and I've read the notes. Now it's been over 20 years, but <clears throat> as I said, there's they they say some things in the way that I'm not just completely comfortable with. But I, I think at the end of the day, it's a sound book. I think that um, Sinclair Ferguson has done some uh, verbal lectures that are available on sermon audio on the Marrow. And our good friend, Dr. William Van Duty Ward, actually has a doctoral dissertation on the Merrowmen. Yep. So um, hopefully that helps you with that. 
And I did want to get it in. I just wanted to make sure I caught the last question that was sent to us as well. So always pressing the clock, doing it live. I have a little less flexibility. But today we actually finished a little bit early. Um, so let me just a couple things that the list for the listener's benefit. We don't often talk about. Um, we have mentioned it. Um, but we do have a Twitter account. The seminary has one. It's GPT Seminary on Twitter. So if you are one of those Twitter nuts and like to use Twitter, um, you can follow us, GPT Seminary. Um, the podcast has one. It's simply GPTS Podcast. Very simple. And then um, Dr. Pipa also has a Twitter account. Now, I'm not promising he'll ever respond to you on this. I, I sent him a direct message in March, and, and I, just got an, Saturday. I just got an answer on Saturday. The, obviously, he's a tr tw Twitter rookie, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> a little, little fun. Um, but I anyway, it is a meet. What? I am that. Uh, anyway, that's true. But uh, if you want to follow him on Twitter, um, it's simply J. Piper Jr. Very simple. His name, first initial, name, last, um, J.R. Jr. J. Piper Jr. on Twitter. And, of course, my Twitter account, which I use often, is uh, William Hill Jr. W.M. Hill Jr. So if you want to contact us in one of those ways, uh, do so. Use the mediums. They're free. Use them. And uh, stay in touch with us as, uh, as we will with you. Also, in addition, we have a Facebook page. The seminary does on Facebook. So simply search for Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. We actively post things on that uh, Facebook page. So those are the different ways you can follow what's going on here at the seminary, on the podcast, um, what's coming up, what's been released. And, and all relevant information of things that we do here. And let me, let me add, Bill, that, yeah. uh, as I said, we're leaving Wednesday for Singapore. It's a five-and-a-half-week trip. We're literally going to fly around the globe. Singapore, next is stop will be Italy, where I do two conferences, and then into northern England, where I'll be teaching a course on worship. I've never done this before, but on my Facebook account, I'm actually going to turn on the You Are Here thing so you can uh, uh, plot <coughs> where I am, and we'll be listing probably on there and on my, <coughs> excuse me, I had a sinus infection, uh, on my um, web page uh, notes about the trip, as well as probably the Facebook page for the seminary. Which um, is a great segue. Um, we have uh, been working on Dr. Pipa's personal website, which has articles, books, videos, uh, itinerary, sermons, whatever you can think of, really. Um, we've been cramming into this website and trying to make it easy to use and, and so forth. But if you want to uh, visit that site, it's simply josephpipa.com. Very easy. josephpipa.com. And, uh, and we're updating it frequently and, and adding material to it. In addition, he has begun posting and blogging at Rough 21, I believe. No. Not uh, Rough 21. Gail Weisner. Um help uh, anyway we could tell we talk a lot before these programs <laughs> but anyway he's been doing that so we're going to try to link those over so they're connected in some capacity so i'm working on trying to get that done as well additionally you can always email me at the podcast um confessing our hope at gpts.edu suggestions for the program um ideas for guests um <laughs> send them in uh i <clears throat> I always endeavor to uh, to respond to every email. Maybe not right away, but I do eventually get to it at some point. And again, if you have questions for us, Faith in Practice, go to the website, confessingourhope.com. This form is right there. It's very simple. <laughs> Fill it out. Send it in. Dr. Pipe will answer your question on the air, which will not occur during July. Since you'll be traveling, so our next broadcast will not be until August 
um, so faith and practice segment number 15 just wanted to point that out for the listeners so until then we do thank you for listening and we do we thank you thank all of our listeners uh, very faithful and very encouraging for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and God bless you